Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, We find ourselves in chapter 5 this morning. And we are literally coming to a close in the book of 1 Timothy. You know what that means, right? That means that Share Sunday is coming. What is Share Sunday? Share Sunday is when we gather together after we complete a book of the Bible and uh, we, uh, we, we share about what God is doing in our lives through His Word. And I think it's helpful for the body of Christ to hear from the body of Christ on what is happening in your life. Is God transforming your life? It, it, you know, and it also, I think it encourages us to really look within and say, am I just sitting here listening to sermons and nothing's happening in my life? The Word of God is is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so how can we sit there and, and, and it be penetrating us and then we not be changing? So that's really the question, and it's really to promote that, that examination that Paul talks about, to see whether we're in the faith. So we want to encourage you as a body. We want to engage you to be writing down the things that God is sharing with you as you're going through the Word with us. And then we want you to encourage the body. Listen, testimonies are incredibly impactful. They are incredibly impactful. When you share your story with other people, other people find hope in that. You know that? Like they can say, man, if they can do that in your life, well, God can do that in my life too. And so we want to encourage you to come and share what God is doing in your life, specifically through the series that we just finished. I don't know about you, but this has been incredibly impactful on my life. I could share for an hour on just what God has done in my life through the book of 1 Timothy so far. So, but it's about you sharing what God is doing in your life. So I get to do this every week. I get to share. I get to wrestle with the word and then come and share with you what God is showing me. But we would love for you to come and do that. So be thinking about that. We're, we're almost there. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Stand with me. We will read the Bible together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we are beginning in verse 17. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor Take part of any, in any sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and We ask you, Lord, to speak to our lives. Speak to our hearts now, Father. We pray that you would just draw us close and that you would just, we would have an intimate time with you this morning. 
as we sit around your throne, as we wait upon you, Lord, to speak into our lives. Will you come now, Lord? Will you help us to hear from you this morning? Lord, don't let us leave here the same people. That's our plea. That's our cry to you today, God. Change us. Set those free that need to be set free this morning, God. Bring salvation to those that need salvation. Do your work that only you can do in the heart of man today. God, we open ourselves up to you. We ask you to have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Oh, I just found another note for an announcement. So, uh, one other thing, <laughs> by way of announcements, uh, actually, we're going to be doing Christmas cards here at the church on Black Friday at the Overflowing Cup uh, at 10 a.m. So, if you're interested in helping uh, make up some uh, uh, Christmas cards for, for people in the community, whether we're going to either send them to, um, to nursing homes or we'll send them to Place of Hope, but we want to just be a blessing to people. So if that's on your heart, uh, Lori's going to be here. Um, she's bringing all the supplies for cards and all of that, so we want to give you the opportunity to do that. And so 10 a.m. on Black Friday uh, Christmas card event. So that, that actually does it in the way of announcements. Now back to uh, the Word of God here. So, listen, there are subjects in the Bible that are incredibly uncomfortable for the pastor to teach on. And, uh, you know, we happen to have one of those uh, subjects here today. We're talking about caring for overseers in the family of God. And so, basically, I get to preach a sermon to you on how you should care for me. <laughs> right? So... That's like you having a conversation with a group of your friends about how they should be better friends to you, right? Uh, some of you are like, what, is that wrong? I do that all the time. Well, um, listen, that, that, that's probably why you don't have friends. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, I don't know, just saying. But, but listen, uh, it, it's a little awkward, isn't it? It's a little awkward to, to be speaking about a subject that directly relates to you. However, here's the reality, is that your pastors at this church are committed to bring the full counsel of God to you. And so when we come across these subjects, we don't skirt them. Uh, that's why we teach the Bible verse by verse. There is no other way for you to get a comprehensive understanding of the Word of God unless you go through it verse by verse. And so, um, you know, we, we do that because we care about your soul. We care about your spirit. We care about you living in victory here and now and not just waiting for heaven. The word of God has the ability to do that. But some of these subjects are just really uncomfortable. We've come across a few of them in 1 Timothy already. And here we find ourselves again on this subject of caring for overseers in the church. Listen, some pastors love to bring that subject up and they find a way to weave it into every sermon that they give. Because they're completely dependent on you. They're, they're fleecing the flock is what I call it. Um, and they're trying to get more from you so that they can have more. And uh, the Lord addresses such shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34. I would encourage you to read that later. Where they fleece the flock of God. Listen, we're not here to fleece the flock of God. We're here to share with you the word of God. And so when we come across these subjects, we talk about them. I hate talking about money in the church. I hate talking about money because it closes certain people's minds off immediately when you bring it up. But listen, I know because I was such a person as that once. 
When I first got saved, it's, I struggled with that, and that's probably why it's difficult for me to speak on, on these kinds of subjects. But nevertheless, I don't allow my, um, my uncomfortableness on these subjects to get in the way of what we're called to do this morning. And so I'm just going to teach the Word of God, and, and I, I'm going to teach it from a perspective as if I'm not the guy we're talking about. Is that okay? Okay. So, so Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, instructing him regarding the responsibilities of each person in the family of God as it relates to caring for those, listen, who are caring for them. So what Paul is talking to Timothy about here in this passage is he's saying, listen, we're a family. We've been talking about the fact that we're a family. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we talk about how to address sin in the family of God. We address the elder man as a father, the, 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 the younger man as a brother, the older woman as a mother, and of course the younger woman as a sister in Christ. We're a family. So Paul moves on, and in verses 3 through 16, he talks about the fact that we're called to take care of widows in the church. And we talked about four different kind of widows last week. If you missed it, you can go back and pick up the sermon. But the body of Christ, the family of God, has a responsibility to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves, specifically relating to widows within the body of Christ. Now, we move on to verses 17 through 25, and Paul begins to talk about the overseers of the church. Who's taking care of the overseers in the church? And so he again instructs Timothy to tell the church at Ephesus that they should do four specific things. Honor overseers financially, protect them from false allegations, rebuke them if they're in sin publicly, and finally select them very carefully. So those are the four things that he talks about. Paul also mentions, as we're going through these verses, obligations of the overseer in the congregation uh, to the family of God. And so we're going to be looking at some things that also uh, myself and Pastor Brian, Pastor Mike also have obligatory uh, you know, to you guys. So uh, we're going to be talking about us as well. We begin first and foremost by considering how the family of God is to honor overseers. Look with me back at verse 17, where Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul begins here by explaining to Timothy, instructing him to instruct the family of God uh, to honor their elders. That word elder there, you can circle it right in the, the margin of your Bible. It means overseer, elder, or pastor. All of these titles are interchangeable. We've talked about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is speaking directly to the men who are leading the church. We're talking about the men who are leading the church there, and he's telling uh, Timothy to make sure he teaches the church at Ephesus on how to how to to care for them, to bless them. How, now, Paul mentions here that there are two classes of elders here. He separates and he distinguishes between ruling elders and teaching elders. There are kind of two classes, I think, and I, th I, I think the reasoning is because of the gifting. Now, with that said, we also know that 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, both uh, make the qualifications of an elder someone who's able to both what? Manage well. Same Greek word for the, the word rule here. It's the exact same idea. And also, they are all to be able to teach. However, 
Some elders don't necessarily, that, uh, the teaching ministry is not their full-time job. And also, some teachers, they're, they're, they're not ruling elders, meaning that's not their full-time uh, job in the church. And so what we're talking about now is dividing elders into specific roles here. And so he wants us to understand what a, a, a ruling elder is. That word to rule means to be over, to preside, to rule. Listen, the implications of the word literally mean to care for, to be diligent with. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? An elder must be able to rule in general. He must be able to, uh, you know, take people and help them move forward. He's a shepherd in a sense. Not the shepherd, but a shepherd, an under-shepherd. So his job is to make sure that he's making sure the sheep are going the same direction. Hopefully that's the same direction he's going, amen? <laughs> that's what he's called to do. He's called to rule well. The, the ruling elder has oversight over specific areas in the ministry. He's gifted and geared to handle what I call the nuts and bolts of the ministry. He, he might be in over the operations of the church, over the finances of the church, over the facilities of the church. He has oversight for the ministries of the church and the deacons and such. In our church, that would be Pastor Mike and Pastor Brian. They are the ruling elders in our body. They take care of the operations of the church. They, you know, they take care of the facilities. They make sure that on Sunday mornings, you know, that, that people are deployed to do different things to make sure that it's ready for service. So we have ruling elders here in our church. Pastor Mike, if, you're not, if you don't know, Pastor Mike is on staff at the church. He works here part-time. He's retired. He, 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 he's come and helped us out, and he works 20 hours a week here at the church. And, uh, well, he, he gets paid for 20 hours a week, but he works way more than 20 hours a week here. So I want you to understand that. Pastor Brian is bivocational. He has a full-time job. He, he, he works at another place to take care of his family and all. And then he comes and he helps with the operations and whatever else he can uh, to, within the body. They both, you see them every Sunday up here in the front, laboring in prayer over the people. They go and visit people in, in, in the hospital. They, they go and counsel people. They're like, well, man, what do you do, man? I know. It's like, exactly. I have, I'm blessed. So that's what they do. They are what, what I consider ruling elders. And then we have the teaching elders. Elders that are called to focus on preaching and teaching. Now, in a smaller church, you have to understand that these divisions aren't necessarily clear because, you know, you, you, everybody kind of does a little bit of everything. But, but in our church, I'm considered the teaching elder. We, we call this position the senior pastor. We call this, you know, some, some call it the, the lead teaching pastor. At Calvary Chapel, we call it the, the, the senior pastor. My job is to teach, means to instruct, and also to preach, which means to exhort, to apply instruction. And so when I'm up here on Sunday mornings, I'm both teaching and preaching. I'm teaching you what the Bible says about something, then I'm exhorting you, I'm preaching, I'm exhorting you to do what it says. And so I, that's my calling. I'm called to labor in teaching and preaching. 
Now, just, just so you understand the structure of our church, because, you know, people come from different areas and they, you know, we don't ever get really a great opportunity to speak about the way that our church is structured. I think it's important for you to know. You know, we are not a congregationally-led church. We are also not an elder-led church. We are a church which, which sort of falls under what's called the Moses model. Uh, Calvary Chapel in general, the movement of Calvary Chapel, you know, we believe that God calls a man as he did with Moses. And then he puts the, the responsibility on that man to deploy his, his will and, and whatever he's calling to do. And so the Lord put that call on my life. I can't give that call to somebody else. I'm called to do that. Remember, Moses tried to give it to somebody else. The Lord said, dude, you're not getting away with that. I'll send Aaron as a spokesman for you, but you are not getting out of the responsibility of the calling that I put on your life. And so that's the way we're set up. I'm responsible for the church. I'm responsible for, you know, where we're going, what we're doing, what the Lord is calling us to. And, of course, the Lord brings people around you, as he did with Moses, and then he divided up into 70 different elders and, so that they could manage the people. I'll tell you what, even in a small church, it's impractical for one man to, to even minister to 100 people. It's impossible to do it correctly. So you have assistant pastors and, and people within the congregation that are being raised up to fulfill those roles so that we can truly be ministering to one another like a family would. Could you imagine being part of a family where you had 100 siblings? How, how well would you be cared for by your parents? Of course, sibling would take care of sibling, right? That's the way that it would work. And of course, that's the same in the body of Christ. And so that's the way that we're set up. Now, just to, to dive in a little bit further on that, um, I'm not, I, I don't have free reign to do whatever I want. I report to a board of directors. The board of directors is made up of two pastors. One happened to be my senior pastor from Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship down in Sarasota, Florida, and another pastor is on staff at Calvary Chapel Chattanooga. His name is Ted Seidel. Those are two of our board members, and then we have one final board member who is a guy within our church that is a successful businessman. His name is Peter Miller. That is the board of directors. I submit myself to them, and they, they help us kind of make sure that I'm on track. If you ever have a problem with me, of course, you can talk to Pastor Brian and Pastor Mike, but you can also go to our board, and our board has responsibility over me. But the, but the board is set up for accountability purposes so that I'm not just doing whatever I want. I'm sure you see that in, in the news or you hear that in different churches where, you know, this guy just does what he wants and you know, that's not the way it is. It's not the way it works. And so I want you to understand how we are set up. Now, I, like Pastor Brian, I am not a paid staff member here at the church. I'm considered bivocational. I make my living outside of the church. And so, you know, I, my, my, I'm self-employed, so that allows me a very much a lot of uh, flexibility, and I, I do spend most of my time on church things. But, but I'm not full-time in, 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 the, in the sense of, you know, the church is my, where I make my living. And I'll explain why in a minute. It's not that we couldn't do it. I'll explain why we're not doing it that way in just a moment. Um, so so um, I, 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 Paul says that I'm called to labor in preaching and teaching, and so that's what I do. You know, even when I had a full-time job, I had a business, and I, I ran a business for, uh, you know, 10 years, and 
um, the Lord blessed it and we were able to sell it. But here's the reality of that. When, when I was working in that business, I was also planting the church. And so I had to, I, I was the ruling elder and the teaching elder and the deacon and, and you know, pretty much a lot of it. We had a, a, a skeleton crew of people here, uh, you know, and, and those people, a lot of those people are still, still here serving in the body, ministering to the body. It's so amazing. But, but, but I do spend most of my time doing that, laboring. Thankfully for Pastor Brian and Pastor Mike, I get to primarily labor in preaching and teaching. It's labor. It's supposed to be work. It's not, not just something that you just get a download from God and 15 minutes later, you're done. For me, it takes me a lot of time. Every pastor's different. There's guys that are incredibly brilliant, uh, you know, that, that spend very little time in sermon preparation. I am not one of those people. It takes me a lot of time to prepare my messages. And of course, I've refined it over the years, but it still takes quite a bit of time for me. It's called to be labor, though. It's meant to be labor. It means that when you're done, literally, it means to be wore out, to be weary, to be faint. And let me tell you, when I go home on Sundays, I'm shot. And I go home and I crash, ask my family. For as soon as I get home, I sit, sit down on the couch and I'm just out. It's labor. I know it seems easy, but you guys understand the mental side of, of things is far more exhausting than the physical work, isn't it? And so, you know, and, and, and we're, we're called, we want to do a good job. And so we put, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that I'm prepared, that I know what I'm talking about when I step in the pulpit. That is my job. I have to wrestle with the scripture to make sure I have a good understanding of it so that I can tell you what I believe it's saying. And, and, and you can't do that if you don't spend the time to fully comprehend what you're, what you're teaching. And there are many people that step in the pulpit that have not studied at all. They're depending on the Holy Spirit. I call that irresponsible. You know, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't give you a message in the moment, but a pastor, according to the Word of God, is called to labor in preaching and teaching. He needs to be prepared for this. And so we take this very seriously here. Um, that, that said, I don't care how much you prepare and how much you labor over something, absent from the Holy Spirit, it is futile. Absent from the power of the Holy Spirit coming through the, uh, the, the, the man of God, speaking the word of God, then, then the laborer labors in vain. We need the Holy Spirit in order to do anything that God's calling us to do. I don't care what it is. I am desperate for the Holy Spirit when I step into this pulpit and when I'm teaching the Word of God. It reminds me of a story with Charles Spurgeon. He, he said one time he, he had been teaching, he's been preparing his sermon all week for this one particular passage, and he didn't have a good handle on it. Charles Spurgeon he didn't have a good handle on this passage, and his wife told him it was late in the evening on Saturday night. She said, oh, Charles, why don't you go to bed and get up early in the morning when your brain is fresh and allow the Lord to give you some rest so that you can think clearer. And he said, oh, dear wife, I guess I'll do that. And uh, they went to bed, and uh, Spurgeon was, was sound asleep, and his wife woke up hearing him speaking. And she, she, she stood up for a second. She said, what is it that she's speaking? Spurgeon was giving his sermon in his sleep. His wife quickly wrote down all of his points so she could hand it to him in the morning. <laughs> Listen, that is what it, it means to labor 
in preaching and teaching. You're so immersed in the Scripture that you're preaching from your sleep. That is what I want my life to be like, to commit myself and you too. The Word of God, it is, it is amazing. It will transform your life. Commit yourself to it. Give yourself over to it and watch what God will do. The teaching elder is called to labor. The, the, the ruling elders are called to rule well. That is the obligations of the elders to the body of Christ, to the family of God. To rule well and to labor in preaching and teaching. Now, what is your responsibility? What does it say? Paul says, each of you are personally responsible to give double honor to the overseers if they're doing their job well. It is a conditional clause. If they're doing a good job, if they're laboring in, in teaching and preaching, then you give them double honor is what he says here. What does it mean to give double honor? To respect, yes, not to prop up on a pedestal, but to show genuine respect for how you're being served. And so you, you, you bless those who are blessing you. But it means more than that. It means to provide financially for them. Just as we are to honor true widows and care for them financially, so too is the family of God to take care of the overseers who are ruling well and laboring. You are to, listen, care for the physical needs of those who are caring for your spiritual needs. Paul goes on to explain to us here he utilizes two scriptures to help us understand why that's so important. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, that's where he's quoting the, the, the verse here that says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What, what does that mean? That means that when they put an ox on, on a wheel and he starts to tread out the grain, that you don't put something over his mouth so that he can't eat the grain. You leave him unmuzzled so that he can eat the grain so he's not distracted and desiring to eat the grain that he's not doing his job, that he's being provi provided for as he's doing his job. He's not concerned about where am I going to get the grain after I'm done? How am I going to have the energy to keep going around this circle, treading out this grain? How am I going to do that? That's why you don't muzzle him. You care for the oxen as he's caring for you. The same holds true for the, the overseer. You need to care for him so that he's not distracted. Paul also quotes Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The laborer deserves his wages. How many of you agree that a laborer deserves his wages? Anybody disagree with that? You probably don't have a job if you don't, right? You're like, no, I don't, I don't deserve my wages. I, I think I should just get them, right? I think I should just get wages. How, uh, you know, how well would it fly... In your if your employer came to you and said, yeah, um, uh, we're not going to pay you anymore, but we're going we're gonna to need you to show up from 8 to 5, we're just not going to pay you. Is that cool? What, what are you going to say? Yeah, see you later. I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not going to show up. Why? Because the laborer deserves his wages. That's what's fair. Somebody labors over something they deserve to be paid for it unless they've agreed to do it for free. Essentially, when, when a laborer signs up for something, they're selling their time. And they're saying, I'm giving you, you my time for X amount. 
and then that ob that's a contract, and that person is obligated to make sure that they're paid. Um, the Lord is saying that the labor in the church is worth his wages. You know, I, I hear from different time, uh, different people at different times in my life, or maybe I wasn't a pastor, but, um, you know, wasn't in ministry like this, and, and I hear people say like, yeah, man, that, those pastors get paid too much. Listen, <laughs> do you know that the majority of churches, like a high, very, very, it's over 75% of churches in America are less than 100 people. I promise you, majority of pastors are not getting paid much. I promise you that they're not abusing the funds of the church. Now, there are the ones that make it on the news. Uh, you know, there are some that do. And some that I think are, are their, their salaries are outlandish, you know, which I think is ridiculous. It's not necessarily based on how well the church is doing. That's not really how, how the pastor should be paid. The pastor should be paid double honor no matter what. That, that's what he's saying here. But, but he's saying that, you know, if the church grows and grows and grows and you, you're bringing in, like, like Hillsong, $100 million in a year, $100 million in a year, you're paying your guy, you know, what, half a million dollars a year to stand in a pulpit for, for 52 days a year? And, and, of course, he doesn't just work 52 days a year. He's laboring over his things or whatever. I'm telling you that, that this is abused, that, that this idea is abused. It's not, you know, it's not about... The, the dollar amount, it's about the intent, I think, and really what's necessary. You know, some people, uh, if the more they get, the, more, the worse they're going to end up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the more money they get, the more opportunities that are availed themselves to them, and they, they open them up. I, I, we don't want those temptations. I, I used to pray when I started my business, Lord, there, there's a scripture, and, and I'm just going off the top of my head now because it's not in my notes, but there's a scripture that talks about, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. It's in Proverbs. But give me my daily portion. For if you give me too little, I will steal and defame your name. But if you give me too much, I might forget who you are. Lord, just give me my daily portion. If you will pray a prayer like that, God will bless you in that way. But, but the reality is, is that oftentimes we're praying for more. And we don't really need more. We just want more. And so, so, so that's the idea, I think, is what he's talking about. He's talking about paying, uh, the, you know, the overseer a good wage, a generous wage, but not an outlandish wage, right? And so they are worth their time. They're worth the, the labor. Uh, they deserve to be presented. Now, why don't I take a salary from the church? I, I could, but I don't because I, I don't necessarily need to. And here's the reality. My heart has always been for ministry. I, I want the, the church to, to be able to minister. And I don't want to be a financial hindrance to the church in order to do that. And so my heart is, hey, give and give and give. And even if I were to take a salary, I would put it in the box. Pastor Chuck used to put his entire salary from the church in the box every week. He took zero from the church. Why? Because God provided for him outside. I'm, I'm in the same position. So God has provided for me. I'm being provided for. I do this because I'm called to do this. You know, Pastor Mike does this not because he's making a gazillion dollars to doing it, because he's not. 
In fact, he puts a ton of time to it. Pastor Brian's not doing this because he wants to be, uh, you know, paid to do his job. Nobody that works at this church is doing it for the money. Our baristas, they don't do it because they want to be paid by the church. They do it for a service to the church. You see, we're breeding people that care about ministry. We're not breeding people who are hirelings that care about a paycheck. And that's my heart. I, I, I want to, listen, if, if, we, if I took a salary, it'd be difficult for us probably to pay our bills. Might be difficult for us to pay the rent on the facility, but because I don't, we don't have to. It's not a problem. Also, it would totally hinder what we could do with the overflowing cup, which, by the way, is not a business. It's a ministry in our church that's meant to bless the community of Columbia, first and foremost, but also the proceeds that we gain from that ministry don't go to us. They go to the place of hope. Now, we need your prayers. We need you to pray for the ministry. We need you to pray that God will bless that ministry, that he'll continue to bring people into that ministry because it does have everyday expenses. And, we, and the way we fund it currently is by what you give. A lot of what you give goes back into the overflowing cup as a ministry because why? We want to bless the community. So essentially, when you're giving to this church, you're blessing the community of Columbia, you're blessing the place of hope, you're blessing first responders, you're being an incredible blessing to people who probably have no idea. And you know what? You'll have treasures in heaven as a result of that. I want to encourage you, man, pray for that ministry. It's a ministry. It's an outreach ministry. We, we want to be a blessing to the community, but that's why... That's why I don't receive a salary from the church. Pastor Mike, that's why he doesn't, he doesn't um, you know, receive much from the church either. He's giving back to the church. Pastor Brian receives zero, and he's giving back to the church. We do it because we're not hirelings, but because we're called. And, and listen, I, I, I think that's important for you to understand. Um, Paul is saying, you know, bless the people who are blessing you financially. Give them double honor. You know, let, let the, let the, you know, let your, as you're blessed, let that flow into the ministry and let the Lord be blessed by what you're doing. As he, he, he's generous with us, is he not? He's so generous with us. And so we should be generous to those who are serving us that, that, you know, if, if you look in the Old Testament, that was the whole, it's always been that way, folks. This isn't something new. The Levites never, ever got a portion of anything. From, from God, they were the servants of God and their portion came from all the other tribes. You know that? Came from all the things that came into the church, the tithes, the, the offerings, all of those kinds of things. That's where they were blessed. And so the Lord put in provisions for them, but it was provisions through the other people. And the, and the church is set up the exact same way. That's, never been, that's always how God takes care of his people, is through his people. And so, you know, it, it goes on here. Paul talking about the first thing we need to do is to honor our overseers. Secondly, we need to protect our overseers. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul goes on to instruct Timothy regarding how to protect the overseer from those who are eager to make a charge against them. What does make a charge mean? Literally, it means to accuse and to incriminate. You know, the enemy would love... He's the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse us. He particularly loves for people in the, in the body of Christ to accuse the leadership. He loves to do that. He loves to create division in that. And, and, and so Paul, understanding this from day one, that's always how it's been, you know, he, he, he quotes 
an Old Testament idea here. He quotes a, a scripture that God had given in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Dude, he's not making this stuff up. He's taking it from the word of God and he's applying it into the new covenant. And he's saying, hey, listen, these are good principles. These are godly principles. These are things that God put in store so that people will not be falsely accused of things. And so uh, Paul applies this as it relates to overseers in the church. Notice he says that do not admit a charge of an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do not accept it. Make sure that, there's, that this is happening, that this isn't just a one-off thing where somebody's upset about something, so they're going to make accusations. Anybody ever done that before? We all raise our hands, right? Nobody raised their hands, but we all do it. That's the reality. So, so here's, the, here, here's what happens. We get upset, we get hurt, and so we make an accusation. And what we do is we, we sin in the process, by the way, not necessarily even by lying, but we sin in the process because we're not following the biblical mandate on how to, how to be reconciled to one another. What am I talking about? I am talking about the absolutely the most, uh, the most um, you know, rejected scripture in the Bible relating to reconciliation, and that is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, this is how you're supposed to handle this. How am I supposed to get, if, if, I'm a, if, I, if I have an offense against a brother, how am I supposed to get two or three to do that? Matthew 18, it's in the Bible. Jesus told us, uh, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this applies to one Christian be offended by another Christian, regardless of who it is or, or what position they hold. How do I, if I've been sinned against by, by say by me, what is my responsibility in that situation in the family of God? What do I do? What you don't do is go gossip about that situation to somebody else. That's not what you do. Oh, let me tell you what happened with Pastor Tim today. He did this and this and this. We need to pray for him. That's not a prayer request. That's gossip. So if you have been offended by somebody, listen, the word of God makes it very clear. There's no question what we're called to do. Go to that person. Make, you go to that person, you confront that person, and you ask them, hey, listen, this is what I feel, this is what's happened, is it true? And if you can't come to any reconciliation in that situation, not immediately, by the way, many of us have like, we're already, we're already 30 minutes into the conversation. We're already calling somebody else up. Hey, I got to get somebody else in here. This ain't working, right? No, th that's, not, that's not the heart. The heart is to keep it as quiet as possible, to deal with it one-on-one -on -one because that's how God is. 
But listen, if, if you don't deal with your sin, he will make it public. So he wants you to deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. If that you can't come to a resolution over a period of time, I don't know what that time is. You ask the Holy Spirit what that time is. Then you go to somebody else and you say, listen, and you don't just go to your friend who's going to side with you. You go to somebody who's spiritually mature that you can trust, and you go to them and say, this is my situation here. I need some help. Will you come and talk to this person with me? What happens is in that moment is that person either becomes a witness or they say your accusations are un untrue and it brings some perspective to the situation. So you bring another person, one or two people it says, right? And so you, you get trusted and mature people, you go and talk. If you can't come to a re resolution there, then you bring it to the leadership of the church. That's within the body. If it is the leader of the leadership of the church, you probably want to grab a leader to be the second person to come with you, right? And, and go and have that conversation. And if you can't make that happen, guess what's going to happen in our church? The board of directors are going to get involved. That's the church for me. And if it's talking about you, then someone's going to call me up and say, hey, can we, or Pastor Mike or Pastor Brian, the, the overseers of the church, and say, we can't come to a resolution on this. Here's what's going on. We need some perspective. What is the purpose of this? To find fault? Is that, is that really, the, the, is that what Jesus said that's what we were supposed to do? The purpose is reconciliation, to be reconciled. Listen, people, I'm telling you that th this is the most rejected scripture in all the Bible because you offend your, you're, you get offended and you, you offend people and you walk away and say, I'm not going to talk to that person either. Again, you avoid them. You don't address the issue, which is sin. It's absolutely sin and the devil wins in that situation because he creates division. Does not, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be reconciled to one another. Paul brings this, the, the same idea into, um, you know, the, the eldership or the overseers. He's trying to bring protection in the situation. Matthew 18 is meant to protect you, to meant to protect your character because, because we're human beings and when we hear certain things about certain people, we automatically take it and we do whatever we do in our mind with it. And it's hard to get that back once you have that inf information in your brain. So God tries to keep it as quiet as possible for as long as possible. But he wants to protect you. He wants to protect the overseer. That's his point and purpose. He wants to make sure that the, the accusations are valid. How many of you have ever been falsely accused of something? How does that feel? That sucks, right? You want to really discourage an overseer in the church? Falsely accuse him of things. And then see how much he really desires to come and serve. Now, should he serve? Of course he should. He's got a call on his life. And he better have thick enough sin to deal with that because that happens. And that's the reality. But at the same token, it's not fun. It's not fun to, to have that happen. Let's be biblical people. Let's do biblical things. Let's talk to one another as it relates to the way the scripture says, right? Protect one another. Protect your overseers. Thirdly, if they are in sin, look, he says rebuke them. Verse 20, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you, Timothy, he's saying, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. If a, an overseer is found guilty in, in, a, in an offense to somebody, you know, and, and by the way, uh, the Bible also says there's a time to overlook and then there's a time to, to address something. 
So if it's sin, if it's sin, you do not overlook that. You do not overlook sin. If you're offended by the way that somebody does something, I don't like the way he breathes when he talks. Well, if that's the case, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying, I didn't offend you, did I? If I did, we'll talk afterwards. I'm a Matthew 18 guy, so, um, but, but, you know, there's, there's, the only time you really need to address something is if it is sin. Is it sinful? Or if you know that how the person is handling themselves is outside of really probably the way that they would want to, then you might want to go to them as a brother or sister and say, hey, listen, I know your heart, and I know that you desire to, to, to love on people, but I tell you, the way you're doing this is not helpful to, to your ability to minister to people. If that were me, I want to know that stuff, even if it's not sin-related. But, but at, the, at the same token, we're not looking to be nitpickers and, you know, and address everything. You know, uh, the pastor gets all kinds of, uh, um, you know, nitpickers that say all kinds of things to him. I don't actually really ever much. But I've, I've read, as I was studying, I read 25 things pastors, you know, uh, outlandish things pastors have heard. It's just crazy. Google it. It's crazy what people say. I got cancer because you don't teach the King James Version. Are you kidding me? Wow. Wow, I didn't know that that would happen. Um, but, but just stupid stuff like that, you know. Um, but, but, but that doesn't, I, like I said, it doesn't happen to me, but it, it, it does happen. Uh, the, the time we need to address something is if sin is involved. And if sin is involved in a leader's life, then it needs to be dealt with in a public way. Why? Because he's in a public ministry. So the more you get out front in something, the more out front your sin is going to have to be because you're affecting people. Saddest thing in the world um, when, when a pastor falls into what's called moral failure, that's a really nice way of saying he's committed adultery on his wife or she's committed adultery on him. And we see that time and time and time again uh, of pastors that fall into these situations and, and, you know, it has to be addressed publicly. You have to address that publicly. People have to understand that sin is so serious that it destroys lives. I told you a couple weeks ago that there's a, there's a, a Calvary Chapel pastor that, that had, um, had an, an, an amazing church, one of the biggest churches in America, commits adultery multiple times, and, and it's brought to the table, dealt with publicly. Um, the last I heard, the guy's tending bar somewhere. You know, it's so sad what sin will do in your life. That's why it has to be dealt with very aggressively, and it has to be eradicated and that's what Paul is saying. You have to deal with the sin of a leader, um, you know, in, in public. You have to deal with it publicly um, so that the rest may stand in fear. So not only are we called to be good examples as overseers in the body when it relates to just in general, but then when, when sin is involved in our lives, the, the church is called to be a good example and make that known so that you may stand in fear of sin. And that, that, fear, that fear is a trembling fear. It's a fear that says, man, I could wreck my life if I'm not careful with what I'm doing. That's what he's communicating. He says, listen, in the presence of God. Now, that puts everything on a totally different plane, doesn't it? In the presence 
of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, do not forsake this. And this is a charge to every leader of every church that ever existed. Do not judge without prejudge, or do not, or keep the rules without prejudging. What is he saying? Don't make a determination until all the information is in. That's what he's saying. Don't be, don't, 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 don't say this. Oh, I know that guy. He would never do that. You don't know. Listen, we are inherently sinful people. I'm an inherently sinful person. And if I'm left to my own sin, dude, there's no telling what I will do. And that applies to you. Well, I don't think so. That's pride. You need to be humble yourself enough to know that there are things that you would do if you were in the right situation. And so you have to guard yourself. I mean, Paul says you are in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and the angels. And I charge you not to make a determination until all the information is in. Do not do anything from a position of partiality. Oh, but I like that person. When it comes to justice, there is no partiality. When it comes to sin in somebody's life, there is no partiality. I don't know, I don't care how great of a person he is or, you know, how, how great of a person she is. It doesn't matter. We're to be, we're to be, not to be partial in any, any time, ever. This brings us to our final instructions regarding selecting overseers in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor, part, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, Paul, Paul says the best way to avoid having to rebuke an overseer is to be careful about laying hands on them in the first place. Make sure that God has a calling on this person's life before, uh, you know, the way we do it, before the overseers, Pastor Brian, Pastor Mike, myself, come and lay hands on somebody. Literally, we're ordaining them for service. Now, that sounds really impressive. It's really not. Because here's what we're doing. We're doing nothing except for acknowledging to you what God has done in that person's life. I make, I make nobody nothing. I know that's totally not good English, but Okay. I make, I don't lay my hands on somebody and make them a pastor or an elder or a deacon. I don't lay my hands on and do anything. My hands are nothing. But, but what I'm doing when I lay my hands on, or Pastor Mike, Pastor Brian, when we're laying our hands on somebody from, uh, our, uh, positionally from an overseer standpoint, we are acknowledging God's call on a person's life. God has made that person whatever it is that we're doing. You see, we, we, we can't do that too quickly, can we? Because we need to take time to make sure we see God's call on their life. That we, we are acknowledging it. We have personal responsibility when we lay our hands on somebody of, of, to make sure that that's God and not us. And I see this all the time where, you know, a celebrity gets saved the elders in the church are quickly to lay hands on them, bringing them up before the pulpit and say, go ahead, we want to hear you. The dude's been a Christian for like two seconds. What is he going to tell you? What position does he have having, coming to the pulpit? What is he going to tell you? He can tell you what God has done. Praise God for that. 
but he does not belong in that position, hands laid on, say, go ahead now. Listen, as much as I personally believe, and this is not a diss, but I personally believe, you know, Joe Biden was propped into his position to speak, and I don't think that he has the intellectual capacity to do that, and that angers me. Angers me greatly that someone would put him in that position and, and allow him to, 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 to just speak the way that he does in terms of his mental capacity. I'm not talking about the election or anything. I'm just talking about the man's health situation. That bothers me. And it bothers me when church members or church leaders bring up somebody who's not equipped to be in front of the people to give them some sort of message on something that they have no idea really ultimately what's even going on in their life, but, but they prop them up there. I hate that. It bothers me. Do not lay your hands on people too quickly. Paul gives us some instruction here. He tells us the sins of some people, in verse 24, are conspicuous, meaning they're easy to see. You can see that. Listen, uh, every pastor of every church, every elder of every church, every human being that has ever existed in any position in the church is a sinner. They have sin in their life. They are not perfect. They'll never be perfect. The grace of God is upon their life to use them in this specific way, but they will sin. And so what your job is, as a person who lays the hands on a person, is to see what that sin is, to understand that sin, to, make, you know, to, to address that sin, to talk through that sin so that you can deal with that. Listen, brother, I'm going to pray for you in this area because I see this sin in your life, and I don't want that to derail your ministry. So you, 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 you talk through that. You minister to them. Of course, you know, when you, when you read 1 Timothy 3, it sounds, you know, if you were to take that, you know, and, and there's no human being that could possibly meet that qualifications in, in, in terms of being perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about a heart's desire. And that's what you have to get to the bottom of. And that takes time. Time tells the true story about a person's life. Why do you think Jesus said, unless you endure to the end, you're saved? Is that, did he say that because he thinks that, you know, your endurance is how you're saved? No. What he said it for was because your endurance proves your salvation. The, the reality of am I saved or not saved, if you endure to the end, you are. Why? Not because you endured, but because Jesus Christ went to the cross and was pinned to the tree for you. And your salvation is demonstrated in your willingness to endure to the end. That's the point. Paul is saying some people's sin is conspicuous. You can easily see it and you can, okay, you're a little prideful. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's watch that in your life. You know, hey, you know, you struggle with this or whatever. You know, we have those conversations. And they're good conversations because they keep us humble. But, but here's the reality is that Paul says there are some that will appear later. What does that mean? They're very hidden. They're very hidden sins that you're not going to see um, unless you spend a lot of time with that person, and then it will be revealed. I promise you, if you spent, if you spent a lot of time with me, you'd see me differently than you do just on the, off the cuff past. Not saying that I'm a bad guy. I'm just saying that I'm a human being. You know, and I have good days, and I have bad days, and I, I get angry at certain things, and I, and I, I get um, hurt at certain things, and all, I, I'm a human being just like you are, and I'm not trying to dole down who I am in, in the church. I'm just trying to tell you 
that you cannot know somebody off, you know, enough to lay your hands on them without really spending a lot of time with them because time tells the true story. Um, he, Paul, Paul goes on to say it, that also works as it relates to good works. Sometimes you can see somebody's giftings right off the cuff and you're just like, oh man, you have the gift of hospitality. You have the gift of this or that or whatever. You can, it's easy to see. Some, it takes time. You know, for me, it took a lot of time for the gift of teaching. And had my pastor in Florida not given me ample opportunity to fail in the pulpit, but give me ample opportunity because he saw something in me and he said, I want you to just keep doing that because I see a call on your life even before I saw a call on my life. And he said, I'm going to keep giving you these opportunities and every, and I made a promise to God, I'll do it if I look like a fool. I don't care, God. But it's on you because I'm not seeking that out. And, and, and so I kept getting opportunities. It took time. And it's taking time for that to come out. And the same is true for you. There are good works within you that are hidden, that are, need to be unearthed and cultivated and all. Paul goes on to tell Timothy here a personal note to him now to remain pure. This is, a, this is speaking to all overseers. Hey, Timothy, remain pure for your health's sake. Now, what is he talking about? I think that what he's saying is Timothy, he goes on to say, you know, it's in parentheses, by the way, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and, and ailments. And, you know, some, you know, when it's in parentheses like that, some uh, manuscripts don't contain that verse, and that's what it means. And so, you know, it may or may be just a, a note that's being put in later or, you know, whatever. But, but the point of it is what we're seeing here is that Timothy has something that he needs to deal with. And it's relating to the idea of being pure. And, and specifically, Paul says, take a little alcohol. Now, the way that I understand this and the way that I see it is that Timothy has a problem with alcohol, not the abuse of alcohol, but the drinking of alcohol. Timothy has a legalism relating to alcohol, and so Paul says, in your effort to be pure, you become legalistic. And, and what I think Paul is saying is, uh, Timothy, don't be legalistic, be pure. Meaning, take a little alcohol. Now, what does he mean by that? He just means a couple tablespoons. Timothy has maybe some ulcers or some kind of a stomach issue, some ailment, that alcohol would be beneficial for. Timothy says, no way. I don't touch this stuff because I'm pure. Paul says, hold on a second. That's not being pure. That's being legalistic. There's a difference. Maybe there's some things in your life that you're calling pure, but actually they're legalistic. And what God wants you to do is examine that and say, Am I doing this because I think I'll have more favor with God by abstaining from these things? If it's not scripture, you know, un, if it's not in the Bible, do not do this. But, but, but if it's not against scripture, but maybe you have a legalism towards something that you think you're being pure in, out, you know, you're, you're standing upright before God in, and he's actually saying you're being legalistic. And it might even be a, something that's incredibly beneficial for you 
as was Timothy, and, and having a little bit of alcohol for his stomach that might be beneficial for him. Maybe the thing that you're keeping yourself from could be actually beneficial for you. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. He's saying, be careful with your walk, man. Don't allow yourself in the name of purity to become legalistic. Be careful with that. Alcohol is not a sin. The, the excess of alcohol, the excess consumption of alcohol is a sin. He's not telling Timothy to get slammed. That's sinful. Nor, listen to this, he knows Timothy so well that he knows Timothy has no issue with alcohol or he would never suggest it. He would never said, hey, drink some alcohol for your stomach if he knew that that was going to put him into a, a bad place. You have a responsibility with that. But just be sure that the things that you're abstaining from are for the purpose of uh, purity, really, and not legalism. Paul goes on, or he, he, he ends this idea here um, with this idea with Timothy, and it ends with Timothy. Listen, it starts with the leaders of the church and it ends with the leaders of the church, but you have responsibility in the church as it relates to the leaders, those who are caring for you. And so here, here we come to the end of chapter 5, and Paul waits almost to the very end to deal with that. And I think, I think that's on purpose. The family of God has responsibility to care for those who are caring for them. Take care of your pastors, your elders, so that they can be free to, and uninhibited to take care of you. Overseers, take care of the family of God. Mike and Brian, you take care of the family of God so that they can, they can continue to care for you. It's a family. We all have responsibilities, amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word this morning and what an incredible thing it is, God, to stand here and to listen to you speak to us. These are not man's words, but these are God-breathed words to us this morning. Father, we pray that all that have been spoken, Lord, we pray that only that which is of you would be remembered. And we ask you to come by your Holy Spirit now and just move in this place. Minister to our hearts, Lord. Speak to us in the ways that we need to be spoken to, Lord. Let us put into action the convictions that you have already placed in our hearts relating to what we've heard. Lord, we want to become more like Jesus. And that, that takes work. It takes application of your word. So this morning we pray that each and every person here would apply what they've heard this morning and and just, just be obedient to your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that does not know you in this place this morning, that they be given an opportunity to come to know you now. Jesus, you went to the cross 2,000 years ago, pinned to the tree, bled and died for our sin so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. There is no other way. You are the bridge you were buried in a grave and you rose again from the dead so that we could have, so that we could be born again. So that that old man could be laid to rest and there could be a new man that walks here. Your word tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. 
the requirement, Lord, is to crown you king and Lord of our life, to turn away from the life that we're living now and to turn to you. It's called repentance. And so we ask you this morning, if there's anyone here that has that desire, that wants to be forgiven for their sin, that wants to know that they will spend eternity with you, if they will turn away from their sin, then they will confess Jesus as Lord and believe that you raised him from the dead. If that's you this morning, if you're online, if you're listening to this later, right now, you pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I come turning away from my sin, turning away from the life that I'm living. I no longer want to live that life. I know that life is keeping me separated from you. I want to be forgiven this morning. Will you cleanse me of my sin? Will you forgive me? Wipe me white as snow, Lord. Cleanse me now. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. His blood shed for me personally. I believe that he rose again from the dead so that I can raise again from the dead. Raise me now, Lord. Make me a Christian. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Fill me with your spirit now. Thank you for eternal life. In Jesus' name. And for all the rest of us here today, Lord, will you fill us with your spirit and help us to live, to walk in newness of life as your word calls us to. We just ask you, Father, as we proceed in a baptism this morning that that you help us to remember what we're called to do as it relates to newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.